This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Feeling righteous because you meticulously recycle? Because you shun plastic whenever possible? And carry your R.J. Julia tote bag to the grocery? Well, think again. Watching Netflix, ordering online, being addicted to YouTube and social media, or buying roses and eating beef might be adding more problems to our environment than the other benefits. Not that you should stop those smart steps, but our guest today, Tatiana Schlossberg, helps us understand all the ways our lifestyle might be impacting the world around us and what we can do about it. Her new book is Inconspicuous Consumption, The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have. Her articles have appeared in The Atlantic, Bloomberg View, and The Record, and she brings her experience as a climate reporter for The New York Times to bring us a lively, engaging call to action. Tatiana, welcome to RJ Julia and Just the Right Book. Thank you so much for having me. Your book uh, brings down how we're personally impacting um, climate change. But let's start with the big abusers. Like, what are the biggest drivers now causing climate change? Well, first, so so the book is about, um, you know, our the, the stuff that we um, do and use and eat and buy and wear every day. Um, but it's not a kind of trying to shame anybody for those right. things. It's it's more exploring those things and how these systems connect to climate change. So I'm not just I'm not policing anybody's behavior. And um I and, will be. <laughs> <laughs> um and you know I I think that um you know we're not as individuals, we are not individually responsible for climate change. Um and there are people who are and that is um fossil fuel companies. Um the cement industry, mm-hmm. the fertilizer industry, climate deniers, congressional Republicans. Um, <laughs> so those are, and you know, I'm so agriculture is about um, like a quarter, 20, 25%, I think, or maybe 35% of global greenhouse gas emissions, um, transportation, electricity. I mean, all of those things are related to, to fossil fuels, but. Um, those are kind of the, the big ticket items. But I wanted to, in my book, wrote, write about some things that we may not have thought about. So I wrote about um, the internet and fashion as well as um, the food system and um, parts of aspects of fuel, which in which I cover um, energy and transportation. Great. So let's start with technology. One like little, there were lots of little tidbits in the book I really liked, but Let's start with this small factoid that I found fascinating. What do the railroads have to do with the internet? <laughs> um, so I studied history in college and as a graduate student, so I was really excited to write about um, the history of the internet, um, which relates to the history of railroads, as Roxanne mentioned. So um, railroads are kind of one of our first physical transcontinental systems, and they were kind of planned haphazardly, um, you know, taking the most even route across the continent um, and also kind of going to places where they didn't necessarily need to be a railroad there because it was 
um, you know, easy and profitable for for very greedy uh, people to do that. Along with the railroads came the telegraph, and the telegraph lines often followed the railroad lines, or vice versa. Um, you know, they were able to communicate wh- where a train was when and um, standardize time across the country, which is really amazing to think about that we didn't have time zones or a standardized time before we had the railroad. Um, but anyway, then the telephone followed those routes as well. And after that came the internet. And um, partly that's because it was easier for the telephone and telegraph companies to secure the right of way just from the railroad rather than from piecemeal landowners across the country. But you know, once those routes had been established, the internet followed there as well with fiber optic cables. Um, and so it's a, I think it's a reminder that the internet, you know, we think of it because of the language that we use to describe it, you know, the cloud and it's wireless and it's, you know, in our phones and, um, but it really is a very physical system and explaining that and explaining the origins of the internet, I think, which I did in my book, allow us to understand why it consumes so much electricity and why, um, and kind of how we've missed that as, um, you know, when, when we use it. So you, that leads right into the other question I had, which was, we don't think of the internet as physical. Right. So in the book you talk about, you start with Silicon Valley, but then you quickly gravitate to Virginia. <laughs> so explain to us just how physical the internet is in addition to these lines. Right. So um, so the internet, I'm, as I'm sure some of you know, many of you know, was uh, invented by the Department of Defense um, as a way for the president to be able to communicate with members of his cabinet in the event of a nuclear attack. Um, but it quickly became clear that it was useful for many, many more other things. Um, so because of the fact that it was a government uh, invention and lots of other companies came in to, um, to kind of build out the infrastructure of the internet, um, a lot of the infrastructure of the internet is um, centered in Northern Virginia, which is not usually a place that we think of when we think about the internet, but it's where the first Apple store opened. Um, although the second one opened three hours later in California, but um, but anyway, you know, it's a it's a part of the country that we don't immediately associate with computers, and it's also a part of the country that um, because of you know where it is, it's on a very old grid that runs on fossil fuels, um, and the electricity use associated with the internet has primarily kind of come there and grown so quickly because of the availability of cheap energy. So we're home and we're no longer turning on network TV, which I guess maybe is better. I'm not I'm not sure about that. So what's going on when we're watching YouTube and Netflix? What kind of what kind of um, energy use is going on? So um, basically, if you know, we're sitting at home streaming uh, video, it takes energy for not only for that or electricity for that data to be stored, but also for it to be transmitted to us in our homes. Um, And, you know, the internet is, it's, you know, one to 2% of global electricity, two to 3% of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's by no means the biggest, um, you know, consumer of electricity or producer of emissions. But I think um, we, we don't really think about it. And so that's why it was so interesting for me to learn about it and to write about it. Um, But basically, you know, we could be sitting here in Connecticut and um, ordering from Amazon in our sleep. And that means that electricity... We don't allow that, Madison. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Not Amazon. Um, <laughs> Beauty Anything counter. else. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's creating a demand for electricity 
you know, wherever the data is stored that you're visiting when you visit the website. And about, a th- you know, a third of the sites that people visit um, are hosted by Amazon Web Services. So they're one of their the biggest parts of their business is actually hosting data. Um, and and a, a, over 100 percent of their profit. Yes. Um, yes. Well, that I mean, that's some creative accounting, but they that is where they make most of their money from hosting data. And so Netflix is hosted by Amazon, as is The New York Times, The Guardian, lots of other um, uh, you know, most of the internet, but, um, also because of that and, you know, lots of other things, um, officials in Loudoun County, Virginia, I think I'm saying that right. Um, they estimate that about 70% of global internet traffic passes through that one part of Virginia. Well, the other, the <laughs> other statistic you had is in 2011, 32 Billion hours of data and video were downloaded. Video, three point two billion hours of video streamed, streamed online that and year. And now it's one hundred and fourteen billion. Yes, I mean, I mean, you have it in front of you. I don't. Remember. I got. I got it from the book. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that this part of uh, your book, where you know, talked about Netflix uses fifteen percent of bandwidth, about the impact of e-commerce on transportation. And I'm not saying this for the obvious reason that I believe in doing things locally, Mm -hmm. but it did make me think about that the idea that we're doing things individually rather than collectively, that we're not going to the movie theater, we're downloading a movie, that we're not coming into the bookstore uh, to buy books and we're buying them one at a time and trucks are going. So Instead of one truck delivering, you know, 10,000 books here a week, you've got a truck delivering 10,000 different packages all over. Is that is that really a legitimate thing for me to say as a type of behavior that would be mitigating or am I just want to believe that? Um, well, I, as with everything, it's it's more complicated than that. So, you know, I want a simple. OK, sorry. <laughs> Um, yes, no. Um, so, you know, I think with some of the, the internet, you know, it, it is more efficient in theory to stream a video than it is to produce a DVD, for example, uh, and to drive to the store to go rent the DVD or buy the DVD or have it delivered to you. But the amount of video that we now watch has kind of canceled out those gains. Um, and so, so part of the problem is the scale of the system and also how we use it. Um, in terms of e-commerce, um, you know, logistics companies like FedEx and UPS are much better at picking out a route than we are. Um, and they will go the most efficient route that uses the least amount of gas. Um, and so it's not necessarily more better for us to be driving to the store ourselves. Um, but all of that is kind of screwed up when you factor in two day shipping or next day delivery, um, because then a truck might have to go out with just, you know, half full or half empty, depending on how you look at it. Um, and uh, to, to make a delivery or, you know, the, w- the window has shrunk. And so therefore they can't make their routes the most efficient possible because of, you know, when we've decided that we need whatever it is that we need. So, you know, w- as with everything, there are kind of there are trade-offs and there are um, issues of scale, but also part of the problem I think is, is the way that we use it and that we've kind of come to take for granted that we can have whatever we want and we can have it now. So that goes to the most annoying part of your book, which was about fashion. <laughs> so Patty mentioned about the problem with 
cashmere. Yes. But I found, I mean, I found the whole book fascinating, but the section on fashion had a lot of things that I think most of uh, us are not paying any attention to or think have anything to do with climate change. So share with us, you know, what your research shows about that. So writing about fashion was one of the most difficult parts of the book to research because there's not the same kind of scientific um, information available that there is about you know food and energy. Um, and I think part of that is because it's you know seen as something that women like, and so it's not seen as serious, but um, it is incredibly serious. And um, <laughs> and one of kind of the, the main drivers of globalization, you know, China manufacturing textiles is a huge part of what China produces and what has kind of led us to where we are now. But um, some of the, so I, I couldn't write about kind of A to Z of the industry. And so I picked a few things to write about. So um, I wrote about denim, fast fashion, athleisure, um, viscose rayon and cashmere. And I was really surprised to, to learn what I learned. You know, I assumed that there would be some benefits to certain fibers and trade-offs for others, but you know, I didn't know, for instance, that rayon is made from wood and about 150 to 200 million trees are cut down every year to make rayon, A lot, some of them from endangered uh, hardwood forests. So and, it, and then a ton, tons and tons of chemicals are used to produce them. And so it's often marketed as natural fiber, but it isn't really. So that, that's just one example of kind of how our stuff fits into these larger global systems that are so easily obscured from the consumer. Um, and I, I think one of the the major arguments of my book, which comes up, I think, very powerfully in the fashion section, is that I don't think it should be the consumer's responsibility to figure out, you know, if this rayon was made well or, you know, with the most impacts possible, because the companies that are selling this should be the experts and they should have control over their supply chain. And it's it's impossible for us in the store to be standing there and try to weigh those decisions. So it really should be on corporations to practice responsibly and on governments to make sure that they do that. And so I, I think in that way, we have a lot of power as consumers to at least at the very least demand transparency from companies and and then to ask for much more. So one one other piece of information that was surprising to me is what athleisure clothes are made out of. Like rayon, I I was surprised to learn that was made from wood, but athleisure, athleisure wear is made from synthetic fiber. So it's made from oil. So that's what polyester and nylon and all these different things are made from petrochemicals. And so fashion in that way is you know, we, it's an industry that touches so many others, you know, agriculture for cotton and wool and leather and petrochemicals and forestry and, you know, all these other areas that don't really come up when we think about our clothes. Production of polyester, which is the the most prominent or the most used synthetic fiber results in producing that results in the emissions of about the equivalent of 185 coal-fired power plants every year. But I wanted to write about that because um, the other problem with synthetic fibers is that they um, break apart in the washing machine, for instance, and they can escape through the filters and end up in wastewater treatment plants where they can either escape through their filters or um, settle into the sludge of the wastewater treatment plant, which is often used as fertilizer, and um, get into our water supply or to the environment that way. And um, I think there has been a lot of focus on ocean plastic and um, emphasis on 
straws. Um, but I, I think it's really important to understand how all these systems work together and that some scientists think that this microfiber plastic pollution is the most abundant form of pollution on Earth. And I think, you know, it's important for people to understand, you know, that it's most of us don't need straws and straws are wasteful, but that alone is not going to that's not we can't stop there, you know, because that doesn't really address the main problem in the system. And Terry Hughes, who's one of the uh, main researchers on the Great Barrier Reef and the coral reef bleaching there, he tweeted, he's like, I've never in my 25 years of diving seen a plastic straw um, in the Great Barrier Reef, but we're building a coal mine, you know, right at the end, right on the shore. So so I, I think it's important to to pay attention to the, the different ways that we produce waste and, and the ways that we don't need to, but also to, you know, think about these things as systems and not kind of let ourselves off the hook for our behavior if we, you know, just because we didn't take a plastic straw. So that raises a bunch of questions. So one is, you you also talk about cotton, because one little question I came away with is, what is the most energy efficient fabric to wear? Uh-huh. Well, energy efficient, I, you know, I, I don't I don't know, because it's it's hard to compare yeah. um, because so different things go into making them. You know, there are trade offs associated with any of them. So, you know, synthetics have present the problem that they present that I uh, just described and also don't biodegrade because they're made of plastic. So but cotton, for instance, uses a tremendous amount of water to be produced. And that's what I focus on in, in the chapter about denim. So cotton. So about one percent of fresh water on earth is available for use. The rest is ice. About 70% of that is used for agriculture. And about 3% of that, 70% is to grow cotton. So it takes on average about 2,000 gallons of cotton to grow two pounds of, I mean, sorry, 2,000 gallons of water to grow two pounds of cotton. And it can take up to an additional 2,900 gallons of water to turn it into a pair of blue jeans. So I think it's really, it's, you know, it's a, Jeans are something that we kind of take for granted and they're such a part of our culture. And um, but they, you know, seeing learning that made me was one of the things that made me really understand, you know, I might not think that anything that I'm wearing had anything to do with water in Uzbekistan, um, but it might. And so we I think kind of understanding how we fit into these larger systems is, you know, yet another <laughs> powerful example of, you know, how our actions don't exist in a vacuum and how these problems w- are all connected and, and how we're connected to them. In read it, because in reading the book, it's not as if you're saying individually, we can eliminate the problem by right. changing our behavior. And we'll, we'll come to that. But it does seem to me that an important element of your book is about sort of opening our eyes to the ingredients of it. Mm -hmm. And we can make some different personal choices, whether, you know, it's going to make me think a little bit differently about going to Lululemon, you know. (laughs) But I also think that reading through it, there were dozens and dozens of things that made me think, all right, I'm going to pause about thinking I need another Mm T-shirt, right? Like, really, do you need another T-shirt? I do laundry more than once a month. (laughs) <laughs> you know, do you, you know, do you, re- right. so there are things like that in the fashion part of it, I thought was very much mm-hmm. that way. And so was the food part. Mm-hmm. So let's move over to that because agriculture is using what percent of 
our re- our energy. Um, I don't know what, what percent of our energy it uses. I, I think it's it is somewhere I think between you know, I th- I think twenty five and forty percent of yeah. um, of emissions, and you know we produce an enormous amount of food, but we also do so stupidly. <laughs> um, you know we waste about thirty percent of the food that we produce, and in the U.S., about two thirds of crop calories are not used to feed people. Two thirds. Yeah. They're used to for animal feed and for um, biofuels. And so that means we import more of our food. Um, you know, the stuff that we actually eat comes from other places. And and so and that's, you know, not to mention that that's a tremendous amount of water and fertilizer and energy to to harvest that food that, you know, will may, might feed us eventually um, if we eat meat, but is really not the most efficient way to feed anybody. And, you know, there's so I, I wrote a chapter about about that and kind of how about sort of about corn, um, which I'm sure most people have read Michael Pollan's book. So it's not an, just a repeat of that, but, you know, to kind of connect those issues to some issues related to kind of environmental justice. You know, the fertilizer that is used to grow that food ends up in rural drinking water and also in um, the Gulf of Mexico causing toxic algae blooms or Lake Erie and you know, the people who are responsible for that is, you mean, the fertilizer companies and, you know, the growers who are maybe putting more fertilizer on than the land the the plants could possibly absorb. You know, they're not paying for the consequences of that. They're not paying for the bottled water for the people in Kansas. And they're not paying for, you know, the destroyed livelihood of the Gulf fishermen in um, Louisiana. And so, you know, it it's I think an, an important thread in the book is um, is you know issues related to justice and equality, and, and that um, is just one example. But I also want to say, I know the book really doesn't sound fun <laughs> from from the way that we've been talking about it, but it it is actually um, it's actually funny. Yeah, it's well, it's you know I wanted to. I think a lot of the writing about climate change. Um, and the environment has been very serious and scary and technical. And I wanted to do something different because I wanted people to feel like, yes, those things are true, but it's also incredibly interesting. And we're also going to have to live with it. And so we have to find a way to be interested in it and continue to be engaged and also, you know, maybe to laugh every now and then. Um, I don't know. Some I was very honored that my book was reviewed in the New York Times and that Bill McKibben reviewed it. He found it to be cutesy um, and the uh, rate of jokes to be diabetic. Um, So I feel bad for giving him diabetes, but I, um, (laughs) you know, I did that on purpose. And um, I think it's important for for lots of different people to be able to feel like they're a part of this this issue and, you know, that you can be a not so serious person and also care about the environment and you know, you don't have to take yourself seriously to do that. And there are lots of ways to be interested in it as well. You know, it's not just science and nature. It's also business and politics and health and foreign relations and fashion and technology. And so, you know, I didn't consider myself a science person. I studied history, but, um, you know, kind of understanding all these systems and their context and their history and how we got to this point is one of the things that I really enjoy, um, uh, you know, in researching this topic. So I, I hope that other people can feel that you know, they can be a part of this as well and brought along on the journey as opposed to feeling scared and like they want to crawl into a hole. (laughs) So Tatiana, what was, was there an aha moment at some point in your life that made you so interested in climate change or the environment? 
Um, I think probably like lots of people um, my age and all ages, um, I saw an inconvenient truth when um, when I was in high school, which I, you know, I had kind of learned about climate change and the environment in school, but it that really, I think, made it seem real. And so I always kind of had that in the back of my head as a major source of anxiety. Um, <laughs> but uh, I also worked as a reporter um, in New Jersey at a local paper, uh, The Record of Bergen County. Um, and I worked, I was there during uh, Hurricane Sandy and kind of seeing firsthand the impacts that climate change was already having and that, um, you know, some people were affected more um, intensely than others. And those people were generally um, people of color and poor people. But, you know, it was a, um, a storm that kind of hit people of all levels of society, downtown Manhattan and a trailer park in New Jersey. And um, so kind of seeing how we were all connected to that was really interesting. And then uh, I went to graduate school and I read a lot of environmental history, which I hadn't read before. And one of the books that I referenced in my book is called The Mortal Sea, which is about fishing the Atlantic in the age of sail and how, um, you know, every generation assumes that the population of fish or, you know, whatever wildlife, in this case, fish, whatever they have is how many there were. But we're, it's a shifting baseline. And so every generation is kind of dealing with less and less and less. And so it made me realize that, you know, climate change may be a, a relatively new and especially intense problem, but it connects to, you know, humans have been dealing with versions of this for a long time, and especially in America, where I think we have treated our resources as uh, limitless. And then at the New York Times, I I was working on the Metro Desk, and I wrote a daily column about New York called New York Today, where I had to I worked from 4 a.m. to noon for a year, and I didn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> um, and so, and I was thinking about what I did want to do, and remembering all of those things. I, it, you know, not it dawned on me, but it seemed like uh, climate change. I mean, it's the biggest story in the world, and as, as I said before, it's a story about everything. And so, people covering it at the paper at the time, and, and this has changed since then, were for 50 to 60 year old white guys. And so I pitched myself as the, the millennial diversity candidate. Um, but and I was lucky enough that they let me do that and, and really lucky to get to learn on the job and, um, you know, learn how to read scientific literature, but also, um, you know, see even more clearly how much people are connected to this problem and affected by it and um, and all the other issues that I write about in the book. So I do want to reinforce something that Tatiana talks about, and I was, and it's a little bit tricky to figure out how to put it in uh, to the conversation. But the style that Tatiana does uses in the book is what I would call conversational, so that you become drawn into it because she's talking about how she figured it out or how she's living. And I think that draws you in. I happen to have read a fair, not a fair, that would be an overstatement, say I've read a fair amount about it, but I've read a number of books on the topic. And some of them are hard work, but worth reading. I didn't find your book to be hard work, which but made worth me- worth reading, but definitely but worth, worth reading. reading. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Let me say that again. I did not find myself having a hard time reading the book and loved learning all the information that I learned with the style that you wrote. 
And I think this opinion is probably more worthwhile for this purpose than whatever opinions might have appeared. Yes, I agree. In a review. We'll yes. just go with this. <laughs> I thought you had a really great aggregation of what we can do. Because the point that you make in the book, which I think any of us on a bad day go to, and that is that we're just powerless, right? So if I forget to throw the plastic bottle in the garbage and I or in the recycling and I put it somewhere else, I feel like, well, what the hell difference does it make? But collectively, of course, these things do matter. But but you give us the advice of how to actually leverage our ability to impact change. So talk to us about that. Yeah. So I I think I touched on this a bit, but I um I think, you know, we don't need to feel individually guilty for climate change. And I don't think feeling guilty helps anybody. I think it makes us turn away from the problem. Um, but I do think that we should all feel, you know, especially those of us who consume more than others, um, collectively responsible for building a better world. And, you know, a lower carbon or carbon free world will be better for everybody. <laughs> um, you know, not only in terms of avoiding some of the worst effects of climate change, but also you know, if we don't live in a society where we burn fossil fuels, you know, people don't necessarily have to breathe in fossil fuel pollution. And um, people, you know, African-American communities and minority communities are disproportionately affected by things like that. And I think, you know, to live in a society that does that to certain people is not a society that I think most of us really want to live in and, and want to fix. So that is all to say <laughs> that I think that the main way to act um uh, when it comes to climate change is to vote and to get involved in the political process, because I, you know, I, I do believe in government, um, maybe not right now, but, you know, I don't know what it was like before the EPA existed. And I don't know what cities were like. Well, we're going to find out, yeah, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So, give us a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, looking at pictures, you know, you can see that, uh, I mean, it was blankets of smog and dirty water and, but it's a result of direct political action that we have the EPA. You know, it's the first Earth Day and the people who protested and the people who organized for the subsequent election that, um, you know, defeated seven of the 12 members of Congress with the worst environmental records. And that led to the expansion of the Clean Air Act and the passage of the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act and some of the, the laws and regulations that many of us probably take for granted. So I think it's, an you know, cleaning up the environment doesn't just happen, you know, and, and we've seen, I think all of us have seen that corporations don't do that on their own. Um, and so we really have to be vigilant as voters and citizens to be a part of making this all better. Um, and secondly, um, I think I touched on it a bit before about, you know, talking about shopping, but, you know, that we have power as consumers um, in terms of what we buy or putting a pressure on a company to do better, you know, Greenpeace has done a lot of work to pressure tech companies to either install renewable energy capacity themselves or enter into agreements with utilities to add uh, renewables to the grid. And that's something that Amazon is the only company that doesn't release its carbon footprint of the big five. Um, and so I think that's a, an area where all of us, because we all use Amazon, whether or not we are aware of it because of the hosting, uh, you know, we, we have power in that way. And I think the the third most important thing um, is to talk about climate change because about a third of Americans say they talk about it at all with their friends and family and even less say that they hear about it in the media at least once a week. So, But when people do hear about climate change and talk about it, they're 
more likely to consider it a risk and to support policies to mitigate it. And so, you know, we all can do that and we all can buy my book and give it to all of our friends. Um, <laughs> but but really, I, I think that that is really an important part of this issue is, you know, communicating about it and showing how we're all invested in, and that we all can be involved. That's great. Thank you. One of the things we're going to do on Just the Right Book is have a regular segment with my favorite guest, who is Dan Sheehan. He's the Bookmarks Editor at LitHub. And for those of you that don't know what the Bookmarks section is, it is like Rotten Tomatoes for books. It's They think of it as their LitHub's book review vertical I think of it as like the best source to go to to see what's getting reviewed. If you subscribe, you get an email every week, shows you what books are reviewed. You see little summaries of the reviews. If you want to see the whole review, you click through. But, you know, it's become for me and gazillions of others the go-to place to see what's going on, make sure that if you're going to a cocktail party that you you know what books you need to talk about. So you have to check this before the weekend starts so you know what you're talking about. But I'm delighted that Dan's going to join us for every other show. And Dan's here in the studio in New York. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much, Roxanne. It's lovely to be here. So, Dan, this we can cover last week and this week if you want. Sure. Um, and uh, Bookmark covers five nonfiction, five fiction. That's right. Every week we do kind of uh, the best-reviewed uh, books of the week, and we divide them into fiction and nonfiction. And usually the way it works is we take the books that have come out on the Tuesday, which is the, the regular publishing day for, for all kind of uh, major releases, uh, and we track back a week from that uh, all the way up to that that Tuesday. Um, and then we can catch everything and the ones that have already been reviewed early, like some of the big releases that have come out in the last week or two, they follow through to the following week. So it's kind of in a two-week chunk anyway where everything gets captured. Perfect. Yeah. So we're, before we finish the conversation talking about Tuesday releases, which in the industry are sometimes called Tuesday laydowns, mm. and some books are embargoed, uh, yes. like Margaret Atwood's Testament, mm. which uh, there was a break in the embargo by Amazon, but and we'll come back to that. Sure, yeah, yeah that was definitely <laughs> the I'll story of the week. Because I'd be interested. Yeah, it was definitely <laughs> a big story. So tell us some of the books that you picked to review, and what kind of reviews are they getting? Absolutely. Well, um, a few of them on the the fiction side. There's uh, the best reviewed fiction of the week is Salman Rushdie's uh, Key Shot, which is his. Um, contemporary reimagining of uh, Don Quixote. Um, and that... Uh, as you... Don Quixote is on my to-be-read pile for way too long. Me too. That <laughs> war and peace just sitting there being like mocking me from uh, exactly. you know, the corner of the bookshelf. <laughs> I wonder sometimes do you have to be assigned these things. If we could be assigned books when we're adults instead of just high school. I want to read great. it. I yeah. want to read Don Quixote. It's supposed it's to be just, a hoot, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it may be there a while yet. I don't know. Maybe maybe this will be the gateway drug. Well, this is the thing. You know, you read this and then you're thinking, what are the jokes I didn't get? Maybe I'll have to go back. So so have the reviews been good? Generally, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Um, some of them have been. There's a couple of ones that have been very negative. Uh, and then. And what's so, their criticism? I think some people are of the mind that his 
newer ones don't work for them in the way that his older ones mm. did. And so whereas a chunk of reviewers love the kind of sprawling, all-encompassing, uh, thousand references nature of, say, this book, other people think that's baggy and too much and, mm-hmm. and he's trying to uh, keep too many pop cultural plates spinning at once. Yep. So it seems to me from reading through them that it's kind of, I mean, everything is a matter of taste, so it's kind of a ridiculous thing to say, but that styling just rubs some people the wrong way and some people find it wonderful. They find it to be this kind of like um, amazing, magical, realist grab bag that also touches on Trump's America and classic books and mm-hmm. TV shows, um, cultural touchstones that they can... Um, that can get little sparks of recognition out of. So the reviews tend to be split between the two, um, with about kind of two-thirds positive or three-quarters positive and one-quarter, one-third negative. I'm going to be curious to see how much enthusiasm there is by readers Mm. because I think it's been tricky for any of his newer books to sort of break out. Obviously, he's got the extraordinary reputation and name recognition. But I haven't seen the books resonate with people. Yeah. Um, so I'll be interested. There seems to be a little bit more enthusiasm for this one. So we'll have to see what happens with that. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because sometimes the very um, sort of tepid, uh, you know, positive but not too effusive reviews are the ones that really make no impact. But for something like this, I'm curious because even if you take the New York Times, uh, one of the reviews was glowing, a Jeanette right. Winterson review, and, and she loved the book. And then one of them from Perul Segal was very negative and she hated it. Um, for me, that makes me more curious about a book. And I wonder for people reading it, does Will, will that they work feel the for same everybody way? else? Absolutely. But I think you're right. I think, you know, I, I don't think the last one was considered one of his one of mm. his better ones by a lot of people. But I guess you do suffer as well in that situation from always being compared to things that are um, kind of part of the the quote unquote like great canon. Um, yeah. So if people are always going to talk about uh, the Satanic Verses or Midnight's Children, um, every review. How do is you gonna, ever get past that? That's it. You know. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Work for Philip Roth. I guess it's true. He, he sort of he got <laughs> second and a third wind down the yeah. way. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's it's a funny one, but um, yeah. So far, I think more attention for this one than the last one. And yes, the raves seem to be more effusive. Um, now, you could argue that the pans are are, are more negative, but mm. I think that is something that will get more sustained attention, that kind of polarizing response. You know, and if we have time, one of the things that I'm always curious about as a bookseller is what is it that actually makes, uh, what actually fuels a book Mm. to become huge? Does it, you know, does it start with the reviews? Is it about how a positive review is written? Is it about... Word of mouth. When you think about, you know, I think about Tara Westover's Educated mm. being on, it's like number one still. Oh, and yeah. I think it's like 70 something weeks. Mm. Now, that's, a, it's a wonderful memoir. I interviewed her early on. It was, you know, I, I, 
I was mesmerized by the book. She was great to talk to. But I don't know that I would have thought that would be the book that would stay on the number number one on the bestseller list yeah. that long. For so, like, year, what are the other not. things that? I mean, we're not going to solve that one, but <laughs> I'm. It, you know, it's a it's a curiosity to all of us in the book business mm. about the thing that gives books that kind of leg. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, and and it's funny. It's there's always one per season or a couple per season where you're just scratching your head and thinking like, as you say, not how did this happen because it's not good, but how yeah. did this happen because like, what's the formula? There are tons of good books that come out and they get kind of forgotten or they have their two weeks in the sun and they And then disappear. they're over. I, I mean, for some of them, it's a combination. I mean, just, I don't know, I don't have any uh, hard data to back yeah. this up, but just anecdotally, I think it's... Um, Book the celebrity book clubs are big, and if it's picked for one of those, it seems to get a lot of traction. Yeah, um, like the Reese Witherspoon, the Reese Witherspoon. and uh, who's the other Emma? Emma Roberts does. Emma one, Roberts which is big, or even like Andrew Luck, the the football player, and I mean, there's a few of them. But uh, how cool is that, though? It's wild. I sort of I sort of love it because it it kind of it must be also encouraging the growth of of you readers, know, readers, and 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 um, book uh, book clubs in kind of smaller book clubs just in communities. Um, yeah. Because this is seen as like a cool thing. You know what I mean? It's not... Uh... I've been waiting all my life for books to be cool. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> all right. We better cover more books. Yes, you and I could talk forever. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. It's like there's... So a few of the ones... We might go into a couple of the uh, nonfiction ones because yeah. I feel like we, we, we talk fiction a lot and with good reason because there's a lot of big releases. But um, two of the ones I wanted to highlight this week from our best reviewed nonfiction are uh, The Ungrateful Refugee uh, by Dina Nayeri. Um, I love this book. Amazing. You know, and, and an incredible I'm hoping story. to interview her for Just the Right Book. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, her, her bio alone is staggering from, you know, she's a refugee herself and herself and her mother fled uh, Iran under uh, her mother's threat of execution. Um, and then they moved to Oklahoma and she went on to, she has some incredible combination of degrees, like a BA from Princeton, an MBA from Harvard, and then an MFA from Iowa. So yeah. this, this insane uh, amount of um, education or qualification in a short space of time. Um, but this is sort of a, a memoir about her own life and experiences of a refugee, as a refugee and an investigation of the experiences of other people who, who have been refugees and have yeah. come through that. Uh, and she's and a that always resonates. My parents are refugees, mm. both of them. And I think by taking her perspective, by taking that perspective and talking about others, it just humanizes what people want to make sh- what people want to make that n- notion of refugee have one singular definition. Mm. When of course it's not. No. You know, there are all sorts of stories and what refugees have added to this country since you know the founding of the country. So I, you know, I feel grateful to her for having written the book. And I think it's just a very, like you you were saying, she's a really gifted writer in yes. telling these stories. Absolutely. And, yeah. and you're, you're totally right. I think there's a course the you know, it's terrible to see uh, the demonization of refugees, but I think it can be sort of a lower level insidious to portray kind of uh, refugee communities as a monolith who whose only... Um, personality quirk is 
victimhood and yeah. to have somebody who knows the experience from an angle and who's invested in um, detailing and illuminating the individual experiences and and um, sentiments of people from different refugee communities uh, is so vital. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's an incredibly important thing. But I think if that alone wouldn't be enough, you'd have to have the quality of writing to go with it, and you have to have the the scope and the structure. And I think that she has it all. She has it all, and, and, and it's great to see this book really. Um, and has uh, it gotten around. all great reviews? Pretty much all great reviews. I think it's 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 got like one mixed review. I mean, everything gets gets a mixed or or uh, or a pan at some point, but for the most part, um, after about a week, it's got. Four raves, five positives, uh, and probably in the, in the two hours or three hours since you know we've been uh, away from the desk, it, probably a few more. So Good. I think we'll see a lot more attention. And it's one of those books, like we were talking about, what makes, uh, what gives a book legs and and keeps it on on lists. I think when it crosses over into um, TV interviews, uh, the way I know Tara Westover has, and um, the way Dina Nairi has as well. She was on CNN recently. Mm-hmm. And, um, and something else I can't recall, but um, that's when you sort of know it's it's resonating in the wider um, cultural. Uh, I hope so. You know? I hope I really hope it does. Yeah, yeah. So, so all right, what else we got? And the other one I want to say was uh, Fentanyl Inc., um, which ben. is by Ben Westhoff, um, and it's about the opioid crisis in America and sort of um, how the sub the subheading of it is how rogue chemists are creating the deadliest wave of the opioid e- epidemic. Um, and it's just a, a very kind of harrowing and um, enraging and, and fascinating insight into, you know, something which at this point we're all, uh, we're all or we all should and be And he's a good of. storyteller. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you need that for things like this because, I mean, it, it really, it's, uh, you know, there's there's a thousand news reports on all of these subjects, but so many of them, uh, they just kind of fly by because people are uh, inured to them. And I mean, that's not the fault of the, the journalists. It's certainly not the fault no. of the, the people advocating on the ground, but it is the reality of it. And when a book comes along that can strike a chord with people and, and, ca- and shed light on one of these issues in a different way um, – it's always good to see because there is there is the feeling with all of these issues that uh, it's turned into noise and nobody cares or the news cycle changes so quickly that nobody sticks sticks with it, you know. Well, and part of it is, and I haven't finished his book, so I so I don't know if it comes to this. I think what people start to feel is helpless. Mm. So if they're just confronted with a lot of bad news, and either it doesn't they don't think it impacts them or they don't think they can do anything about it. There's so much bad news, it seems, sometimes that you want to check out. So, you know, just like the ungrateful refugee, there's a good possibility that Ben's book, Fentanyl, will begin to get people starting to understand, well, how how, how the hell did this even happen? Yes, yeah. And that's what he does such a good job with. Absolutely. It kind of cuts through the confusion of, I mean, you could you could have 10 articles on the subject that you, you pocket or you open up on your phone with a view toward getting to them later. But as you say, it's overwhelming. And to, to get a, a well-drawn um, narrative as to how it began, how it's developing, the sort of more insidious uh, actors in it and what maybe can be done is so crucial. And I think we're probably going to see a lot more of people, um, you know, creating a little oxygen bubble of single um, narratives and single stories that they can they can um, 
uh, interpret a little easier as opposed to just trying to suck in as many headlines as they can online, which I mean, I do all the time. And I'm forever seeing an article and saying, like, I'll get to it because I need to learn about this. And I open it and I don't get to it. And either the news cycle changes enough to make it irrelevant or it's just so overwhelming you close all tabs. Um, So, Dan, you're bringing up a really interesting point that I've thought about recently because I do this. I'm even worse. I print the articles mm. out, right? I... I save them in a to-be-read folder. I print them out. I, you know, I do a million different things, and I schlep them all over the place. Yeah. And then I could be schlepping them around for six months to a year, and I finally say, you know what? I don't really care about beige wallpaper anymore. I'm just going <laughs> to— The moment has passed. I'm just going to throw it out. But the question is, yet I find myself more willing to actually commit to a book Oh, for sure. So isn't that odd? Like I'm not I'm not spending maybe it's because you're thinking of like smushing it all in mm. instead of saying, Okay, I'm gonna really I'm gonna commit to this. Yeah. I'm gonna read this. I wanna understand the refugee situation. I wanna understand the fentanyl situation. I'm gonna I'm gonna make the commitment. Mm. And then somehow you're more in. Absolutely. And I and I do wonder huh. I wonder whether that I'm and I find that completely myself and, and I wonder whether or not the brain recognizes that, oh, we're sitting down to read a book, let's try and process this information in a way we used Differently. to. Differently. You know? Because it was because you didn't before we all became obsessed with with taking in as much info as possible from the internet. Yeah. That's not how we consumed information through books. Like you wouldn't sit down to read a novel and say like like speed read it like it's you know the Coney Island hot dog contest you know what I mean it's like I'm trying to appreciate this you know but, but when I read stuff on Twitter I'm like how many facts can I shove into my brain at once so I'm informed and of course I'm not informed because I'm not they're yeah. not settling it's the way like they knowing should. a lot it's knowing nothing about a lot yeah exactly so exactly. maybe we have to give that up a little bit like stop trying to think we need to be factoids. You know, like just mm. fill our brain, fill our brain, yeah, and think about paying attention to something in a more meaningful way. Absolutely, even if it takes a little longer, the what you'll retain, and then I guess what you can use is going to be more valuable anyway. All right, Dan, you know? we're going to start this movement. This is it. It's happening right. today. We're going to do it. One. We're going to start now. <laughs> All right, let's cover a fiction book. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, what fiction? Do you know what I want to talk about? Is is uh, a, a fiction book that's coming out. You know, it's actually coming out in the next few days. It's not out yet. It might be next Tuesday. But it's an odd one. It's called Duck's Newburyport. Have you heard this? Well, you know what? I asked, I was at the uh, RJ Julia's yesterday Mm. working at my desk. Yes. And I thought, now I need to read that. I I need to read this. Mm. So they put it on my desk for me. So it's a doorstop, yeah. and I hear it's not punctuated. It is one sentence. Apparently it is a thousand pages and one sentence. Um, so tell us about this book because it's the hottest book. It really is, in, like inexplicably. Um, so it's it's about um, if I've got this right now because I haven't I haven't been brave enough to crack into it yet. But I, I, I didn't even open it. It's daunting, <laughs> you know. Looking at it there, and a and a book that's a thousand pages in one sentence, and it's shortlisted for the Booker. That's right. right. It was shortlisted yeah. for the Booker. So along the Booker shortlist came out this week, um, and it was shortlisted along with the uh, Salman Rushdie and the new Margaret Atwood book, and. Two or three others that escaped. Some are not released yet. No, yeah, there's a few that have just come yeah. out in the UK or, or are on their way out. But, but Doug's new report is by a writer called Lucy Elman, and it's the entire book is a woman sort of in her kitchen talking and thinking about the myriad issues that that 
across her brain. You know what I mean? Um, political, geopolitical, uh, things to do with family, things to do with pop culture. Like a rant do... or a meandering? Kind of a meandering. So it's like it's like a, a, a kind of a torrent of consciousness. Um, and it's it's this homemaker, this this woman, and she's at home in, in, her, uh, in her house in Ohio. And she's looking out the window and she's doing the dishes and she's just, you know, uh, kind of being in her normal routine. But what crosses her brain is kind of every issue of the day and how she feels about it and and what are the ones that make her kind of uh, exhausted or angry or, or perplexed and I'm told it encompasses kind of everything it's like a, there's there's a literary criticism there's a political analysis there's um, there's a, a story there's one thread that's kind of a story about a mountain lion that that she follows through and in describing it or in presenting it to somebody um, it seems like an impossible read and one that you would take forever to get through and, and has no real structure. And I mean, again, I haven't read it, so maybe there yeah. are people who will read it and say that so it is. So what do the reviews say? The reviews so far have been good. It's it's like it's... Um, good or rave? There's been a few... Uh, well, what do we have here? Five raves, two positive, and one mixed. So, so far, especially since it hasn't come out yet, it's coming out on September 10th. Um, really, really strong. Um, and one in particular by Parul Segal in the New York Times. Um... She says, uh, the capaciousness of the book allows Elman to stretch and tell the story of one family on a canvas that stretches back to the bloody days of Western expansion, but its real value feels deeper. It demands the very attentiveness, the care that it enshrines. So what she would say is that... That sounds good. Absolutely. Like, like don't be put off by everything about this book that should put you off because it actually is a ton of fun and it has... It encompasses all of these different I'm things that are going to fascinate you. Yeah, so... But, you know, think about... What was the book um, uh, that came out a few years ago that was a doorstop and depressing and many of a, a big life? Oh, uh, uh, was no, it uh, was A Little it Life? A Little Life. That's right. That's right. The Hannah <laughs> Yanagahara one. Not a big life. A Little Life. <laughs> a life the other one. <laughs> the other one. Um, but that, you know, I read that. I did not put it down. Mm. I wouldn't say at the end of the day I loved it, but I ended up being riveted by it. Yeah. And I want it'll be I, we'll see. We'll let everybody know as one of us gets to read this book. How it's all going. Yeah, you know? and I'll be curious what customers say. Yeah. You know, will yeah. they pick it up and say, "Oh my god, th this was th th I'll never get through this." Or this is wonderful. That's it, you know. And I, I sometimes wonder whether books of this size, do they only get the readership that maybe often they deserve when they are, they've already achieved cult classic status. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, Infinite Jest was a big seller and a big literary event when it came out. But I would say an awful lot of people who bought it even then, it took them a while to get around to reading it, you know. If ever. I mean, it's, yeah, if ever, or it's just sitting at home waiting to be read again. Um but there's not that many books that clock in at that amount of pages that um, kind of stay the course because it's a it's a daunting task. And I mean, maybe it, it shouldn't be like it'll take a while longer to read this, but it's not, um, you know, it's not 10,000 10, pages. You can get it done. Yeah, exactly. We binge watch TV shows all the time for hours and hours upon end. You know, it shouldn't be that hard to, to give a little more time to the book. The only problem is commutes. I'm never taking that on the subway, so that's that's gonna uh, yeah. eat a few a few hours off. But um, I sort of like the idea of um, 
of a big project to commit to every once in a while. I mean, I I, cheat. I do too. Like you, you cheat sometimes, and you know, if we're coming to the end of the year, and I'm thinking, God, I'd love to have a few more books read. You start looking for the novellas or the very the debut story collections, yeah. you know. Um, and there's definitely a place for that. But I'm 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 very curious about this one now. Well, uh, you know, speaking of that, the last time we talked, uh, we talked about a piece uh, that. Uh, you did in LitHub on the debut novels that we might have forgotten. That's right. Of writers yeah. that became well-known. So it turns out that one of the books you had on that list was The Great Believers by mm. Rebecca Mackay. Yes. Well, I got off – I was in Maine when we did that. So I finished uh, the interview with you. And I turned to my left, and in, you know, these pile of books that we all have in our house mm. was The Great Believers. Mm. So I picked it up, and I, I couldn't put it down, which was a problem because I need to read books for just the right book. And sure. those are all not, you know, so there are the books that I have to read. Mm. And But, man, I was just like glue with That's The incredible. Great Believers. Really? So for those who don't know, it's set in... It's set in the 80s and modern times in 2015 about the uh, a group of people who become defined by the AIDS crisis in Chicago in the 80s. But, mm. man, for anybody else who hasn't read it, so thank you for that recommendation. Oh, of course. It's, yeah. it's incredible. You know, I mean, she's, a, she's an unbelievable writer, um, Rebecca Mackay, and I think this is one of those ones um, that feels— we might have talked about this before in the podcast, but there's there's uh, there's almost a stigma attached to the term great American novel now because it carries a lot of baggage with it. But I think when you see a novel take on one of the big defining themes of an era, which sadly the AIDS crisis was, and you see them pull it off so beautifully and, and sensitively um, and achieve what they wanted to in such a, uh, an ambitious undertaking uh, – there's few other terms that seem appropriate. Yeah. Sort of like a, well, a I think that's right. Modern American novel. All right. We have five more minutes. Okay. So let's cover another two. Okay. So um, let me see some of the ones uh, that have been getting very good reviews of late. I mean, on the back to the nonfiction side, uh, Sarah Broom's The Yellow House and Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror are still going very strong in, in recent weeks. They've been getting rave yeah. reviews and sales have been very strong and I mean we're talking about um, like a large painful oftentimes painful memoir um, of a family in New Orleans and a book of essays these are not traditionally the types of books that get yeah um, massive attention or sustained attention and sell thousands of copies but, but yellow house I I um, I picked it up and she's got Sarah has that kind of voice mm. that makes you want to understand a story you didn't know you wanted to understand. Yes. Absolutely. Right? That's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. And that's what I think she accomplished. Mm. That's what I think she's accomplishing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, and I love the way she talks about what a house does oh, yeah. to your identity. And how you feel about things and your history. Mm. The importance of that and not just as a, you know, it's almost like uh, it's it's a character in and of itself and, and is treated with the same respect and the same um, depth of character, characterization and focus as you would want to see given to uh, a character. I would um, like to see Yellow House replace Educated as the nonfiction book that just 
resonates with an ever-increasing audience because it's a good way about it's a good way to also talk about race mm. in a way that is the more uh, the more impactful ramifications of race in other ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you don't necessarily think about, well, you know, Katrina, it was a it was it was a storm. New Orleans has had all these, you know, climate water problems to begin with. But no, then there's the whole other set of ramifications from it. So mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm rooting for Yellow House. Yeah. I, and, I, and I think, you know, I think you're in the long term will be happy that, you know, in the sense that I think it will stay the course. I think it's it already has the feel of something that's going to be a kind of uh, classic of the genre. Yeah. Um, and people seem to really be responding to Good. it. Uh, Good. Which is great, you know. All right, terrific. Yeah. You want to do one more nonfiction? One more nonfiction. I was going to say um, we could talk about, yeah, we could talk about um, Gia Tolentino's book because I think uh, it's kind of incredible it's a fantastic book, and the essays are fantastic. And I mean, usually I've not when, read it. When you, it's it's kind of there's a there's personal essays, there's essays about um, the Me Too movement, there's essays about online culture, and it's say the title uh, Trick Mirror. Trick um, Mirror, and she has this huge internet following from her writings on the New Yorker and and Jezebel. Um, but it's one of those rare essay collections that I think there are no. There are not really any duds in it, you know, like all Whoa. the writing feels, which which is strange to say because there's always, I mean, the nature of these things, the way you almost always frame a review for a short story collection or an essay collection is um, these two shouldn't have been in there. This was used to pad. Or this like one's that. worth the price of admission. Absolutely. You know, like this alone. Um, but I think she is incredibly astute about um, kind of millennial culture, internet culture, uh, the way um, we filter certain um, uh, 21st century issues through the the prism of um, online online discourse. Mm. Um, and she's very sharp and clear-eyed about her own, um, like her own inbuilt um, ambivalence about some of these, yeah. these issues and how she feels. Um, so it's great. She's just one of these fantastic voices that uh, five years ago, you know, I certainly had never heard of her. I hadn't read any of her stuff. I, I, and, and, yeah. and now she's she's kind of everywhere. And when somebody like that puts out a book, there's the worry that a bigger project is not going to live up to the individual, to the hype that's been generated by the individual essays. Um, this one does. Uh, it's it's pretty exceptional. And it's uh, it's it's been selling. It's It's been, you know, uh, yeah. packing out bookstores around the country. So um, I think it's just about starting to calm down the kind of the, the um, hype, the hype around it. But, uh, you know, it deserves it. It's 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 a great book. And, and I think we're going to see, you know, a lot more, a lot more of those from her as well. Well, Dan, we've been talking with um, Dan Sheehan, who's the bookmarks editor for Lit Hub. Uh, probably what we've done is add to what you want to put on whatever, wherever you pile up uh, your books or however you download your books, uh, because, you know, sometimes, maybe this is an age thing, but 
uh, you know, on I Love Lucy, you probably don't know, but there was a TV show, I Love Lucy, mm. right? That, and there's a there's an episode that a lot of us consider iconic with the chocolates coming down the conveyor belt and she's supposed to put them in something and they come down too fast and she starts stuffing them in her clothes. I think I have mouth. seen this. Yeah, just yeah I mean, it just <laughs> becomes its own thing. Sometimes I feel like with with books, like if, when I read bookmarks, I think, okay. I got to add that to it. Yeah. And, <laughs> but, it's, and it's impossible, isn't it? It's just there's, yeah, there's you, some... It's like that chocolate's on the conveyor belt. That's it. You know, you think you get a little bit of a break in the summertime where you think, okay, the publishing world has slowed down a bit. Um, and then it just starts right back up again. But uh, you know what? I want them in the house because I never know. Like The Great Believers has been in my house since it came out. Yeah. yeah. And and only now did I pick it up. But if it wasn't there, I would have been sad. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you're kind of eyeing it as reminding you. I mean, I just I just They got, talk uh, to you. They do. They do. They're, they're, it's, it's like a guilt trip, you know? You're like, remember, you you got to get to me eventually, you know? <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dan, and we'll see you, see you next time. Absolute pleasure, Roxanne. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.